What are the results of truly confessing Jesus? Truly confessing Jesus, as we saw last week, involves agreeing with God about who Jesus is. And that confession, we also saw last week, leads to loving with the same kind of love God showed in sending Jesus. As we continue with chapter 4 and get into chapter 5, we see some of the results of those truths we looked at last week. Today we're going to see that true believers enjoy perfect love that overcomes the world. True believers enjoy perfect love that overcomes the world. True believers enjoy perfect love. We see this in chapter 4, starting in verse 15. John is continuing to discuss God's love, as he has already begun to discuss in chapter 4, verses 7 through 14. And he starts out by saying this in verse 15 and 16, If you abide in love, you abide in God. Those who confess Jesus is the Son of God abide in God, and God likewise abides in them. How do we come into relationship with God? By true confession of who Jesus is, true belief about who Jesus is, becoming to have a relationship with Jesus. The necessary result of that, according to Scripture, is we begin to abide in God, and God comes to abide with us. And this anticipates what will be true in eternity, which is God dwelling with his people and his people dwelling with him. Truly confessing Jesus leads to a daily experience of God's love. This idea of daily experience of God's love, not in a sentimental way, not in I feel loved by God, but in a practical reality, is important because it is possible for people to say, I know God but not really have a relationship with God. So if they just say, I know God, as we saw last week, and I know these facts about God, and I think I believe those facts, but it has no impact on my daily life, John would say you don't actually know God. There has to be the true confession of Jesus, accurate, doctrinally correct, all of those sorts of things, but that then necessarily and definitively leads to experiencing God's love which, as we'll see in the rest of the passage, means God's love is lived out through us. Experiencing God's love is thus a sign of God's presence, verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. When he says we believe the love God has for us, we would expect him to say something like, we believe that God loves us. But that's not what he says. We have believed the love God has for us means how did God, in the verses we looked at before, uh, demonstrate his love, verse 10, he loved us and sent his son. So if we've believed in Jesus, we have believed God's love because God's love was the reason Jesus came and we've believed in Jesus who has come. So here's the progression. True confession leads to true love, which loops back around and, co- and confirms God's presence in and with us. So if you abide in love, you abide in God. Very clear in verse 16. The one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That's verse 15 linked to confessing Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in him, and he in God. But then in verses 17 through 21, John proceeds to explain what the result of abiding in God, confessing Jesus, all of these aspects of genuine salvation, what does that produce in you? Abiding in God perfects your love. Abiding in God perfects your love. Continuing in God's love perfects that love in you so you don't have to fear 
the judgment day. Verse 17, by this, what is the this? By confessing Jesus, experiencing God's love, and knowing that we belong to God, our love is being perfected with the result that when we anticipate the day of God's judgment, we don't have to be afraid. If God is love and we show His love, it shows we are of God, abiding in God, born again. That means we're not going to be condemned when Jesus returns, but instead our union, our connection, our abiding with God will continue and, and develop even more because we'll see Him face to face. We were talking a little bit from the end of Zechariah about the day of judgment. It also talks about it in James 5. It also talks about it in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and in Corinthians and a bunch of other places. This concept of the day of judgment that is coming is something that is certain. Why don't we have to fear that day of judgment? Perfect love frees you from fear of punishment. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. Sometimes we want to make this a generic kind of thing, but we have to take this verse in its context. The fear that we don't have is fear of being eternally condemned when Jesus returns. The love that we have is not a vague sense of, I feel a certain way toward people, but rather that we love God because we have been loved by God, and the connection is, because we have this relationship with God, we don't fear the return of Jesus. If, uh, perhaps an illustration of this would be the difference between dad coming home from work and a burglar breaking into your house. Which one of those two are you looking forward to? If you're anticipating loss and destruction and devastation... You're not going to be looking forward to it. You might watch out for it in a wary, cautious kind of way. You might put up security cameras. You might have alarms. You might try to do something to not be caught off guard by this bad event. But it's not something you're looking forward to with joy and with confidence. It's something you're actively trying to avoid. And that's the attitude of people who don't know God. If they don't confess Jesus... They don't experience God's love. They don't have a relationship. They're not believers. Lots of different ways of saying it. They're doing everything they can to try to extend life as long as possible so they don't face what Hebrews describes, which is at the point of death, every person faces judgment. And they're also trying to ignore all of the warning signs in the world today that point to the fact that there is a coming day of judgment. We talked earlier in Sunday school about the fact that AD 70 when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and Rome just sort of wiped out large swaths of the Jewish nation, that was an anticipation of the final judgment of God. But it was not the final judgment of God. Sometimes we look at events that are happening in our world today. We see floods, we see fires, we see wars, we see various catastrophes in our world, and we say, this must be the day. I don't think that we can know for sure the day or the hour that Jesus is coming back because Jesus specifically said, you won't know that. But when we see all of these catastrophes and wars and famines and all of these kinds of things, they should be a warning to us that because these lesser judgments are taking place, the great day of judgment will also take place. So sometimes people say, well, forget the whole thing. 
because some people have said we can predict the date based on these worldwide events, we don't have to worry about the date at all. We should not be fixated on a particular date, but we, we must be certain and confident that Jesus is coming back, and when he comes, there will be destruction. Second Thessalonians 1 says there's a day coming when Jesus will return with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking God's vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel. Well, what does it say here? It says, we can have confidence in the day of judgment. We do not have to have fear because perfect love casts out the fear of punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Why does every person who doesn't know God, why do all of them deep down have a fear about the future, have a sense of guilt about life, all of these kinds of things? Because deep down we know there is a God. Romans 1 says that very clearly. There is a God and he's revealed himself in the world around us. Romans 2 says, even the Gentiles who don't have God's law have a kind of law working in their hearts. We all have a conscience. We can try to sear our conscience. You ever take your hand and touch something hot? Or you ever take a piece of meat and you try to burn it so that it seals in what's inside? You sear a steak or something like that? The Bible says it's possible to do that with your conscience. You sort of burn it out with repeated exposure to sinful activity so that it doesn't bother you like it's supposed to. It doesn't mean what's inside isn't still there. It just means it's not working the way that it's supposed to. People suppress their knowledge of God. People sear their consciences. But God is still real and they still know right and wrong. If they hear the gospel... The Bible presents the gospel, and we often don't do this, unfortunately. We don't present the gospel as a requirement of God. Here is what God has done. He commands all people everywhere to repent, Acts 17 says. He's appointed a day of judgment through the man whom he's appointed, Jesus Christ. And when we don't present the gospel as something that must be obeyed, people take it as, I could take it or leave it, it's not a big deal. Um, you get one of those flyers in your mailbox that says, there's a sale at whatever store. Say, I don't have time for that this week. No big deal. Forget about it. Guess what? There's going to be another sale in a few weeks and you'll be fine. But when it comes to believing the gospel, we're not guaranteed another, and I don't want to say sales flyer because it's not as though the gospel is something that can be bought and sold. There may or may not be another communication that says, hey, you need to believe this. You need to act on this. You need to do something about this. There's a sense in which our presentation of the gospel should be treated as a final warning. The next step is eviction. The next step is imprisonment. The next step is some huge consequence. This is your final warning. And we want to say, well, it's not that big of a deal. There'll be all these other opportunities later to deal with it. Now, I realize there's a difference in the conversations that we have with people that we see repeatedly in the sense that in a normal course of life, we expect to see them over and over again. And yet at the same time, I don't think we should ever lose that sense of urgency because if someone is not walking with God, if someone is not believing the gospel, no matter how good a friend, no matter how close a family member, no matter how many times we've seen them in the past week or month or year and how many times we expect to see them again, we should never lose that sense of urgency because what does it say? The one who fears is not perfected in love. To the extent that they're still in a state where they are rightly fearing God, 
or where they think they've put all that away so they don't have to fear God, that's a very dangerous state to be in. God punishes those who reject Jesus. But in contrast, if we have believed in Jesus and we live out God's love in the way that Jesus did, we don't have to fear God's punishment because we're not the objects of his wrath. Living out love the way that Jesus did, we talked about this in previous weeks, it was sacrificial, it was clear, it wasn't just sort of a, it was based on actions that he did. It was based on um, a genuine desire for the good of those that he was serving. So true love involves service and sacrifice and it's not hypocritical and all of those kinds of things. If we love in that way as God loved us, verse 19, we love because he first loved us, we can have confidence that we have a relationship with God. And that's because perfect love originates in God. God is the source of our love. Our love is God's work through us. So if we have a relationship with God, then the fear of punishment, of death, of eternal condemnation is taken away for us. We instead turn to say, I have confidence that I belong with God, and the evidence of that confidence, the basis for that confidence is, I am showing God's love, and that is a sign that God is at work in me. So what's the result of that perfected love? How does it get demonstrated on a daily basis. It's not just that abiding in love abides in God and abiding in God perfects your love, but it builds on it. Another step is that perfected love is seen in love of the brothers. Perfected love is seen in love of the brothers. Verses 20 and 21, and then the first few verses of chapter 5. Perfect love becomes visible through love for the brethren in obedience to God's example and command. Verse 20, if you say, I love God, and you hate your brother, you're a liar. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. If you claim to love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. And the reason for this is the family relationship between God and his people. Here's God. Here's someone who is a child of God. You say, I love God, but I hate the child of God. Or I love the child of God, but I hate God. That's not how families work. I don't know what your experience of these things have been, but I've encountered people who've said, I hate you, but I'm good with your kids. Or vice versa, I hate your kids, but I'm fine with you. That's not how families work. To the extent that a family unit, particularly this is true when everyone is living in the same household. I think it's most clear in that instance. But even if you are estranged from your kids or if you've gone through a situation like divorce or whatever other things, to the extent that there is some measure of a family connection with these people that you know that you've spent a large swath of your life with, if somebody goes and starts talking bad about one of them, you're going to stick up for them. You're going to have a connection with them. There's still some measure of care and concern in most instances there are, there are exceptions, but there's usually some measure of care and concern, even if, they're, even if you're not getting along with everybody in your family, even if there's been some sort of rift with people in your family. It's, it's kind of the, the situation of if you know, two people in a family are fighting, 
And then, like, let's say two brothers on the playground, they're fighting with each other. And then a third kid shows up, and he goes after one of the brothers. What happens? The two brothers stop fighting, and they go after the kid that attacked one of them. You know, that, I'm not saying that that's the right behavior. I'm just saying that's kind of a fact of how these things work. So here's my point in saying that. John is saying, if you say, well, I love God, but I hate his kids. Or I love God's kids, but I hate God. There's this inseparable connection between God and his children, such that you cannot love one without loving the other. You can't hate one without hating the other. Why is this important? Or what's a, another step building on this? If you don't love the one who's right in front of you, how can you claim to love the one you don't see all the time? So, I suppose we could make the argument that it's harder to love people who are around all the time, but that's not really the direction that John's going with this. What he is going with this is, let's say that you have an uncle, and he lives far away, but one of his kids lives right next door. They say, oh, I love my uncle. He's such a great uncle, and I love him, and, and all of that, and he's really close with his kids, my cousins that live around the corner from me, but I really... You know, I really love those cousins, but you know what? I don't really want anything to do with them. I don't spend any time with them. I don't help with them. I don't talk to them. I avoid them as much as possible. But I really, really love my uncle, and we're so close. If you have that sort of response, the people that are right around the corner from you, how can you claim to have a closer relationship with the people who are far away? You can't see God, but you can see the people sitting right around you. So if you don't love the people sitting right around you, it's really hard to make a believable claim that you love God that you don't see, that is not distant but feels distant, all of those kinds of things. And building on the fact of the lie that comes with saying you love God but hate his children, that it's really hard to claim true love for someone far away when you don't love the person right in front of you, there is the fact of God's command. This is the command that we have from God. The one who loves God should love his brother also. We talked about this when we were going through uh, chapter 3 in particular, but even earlier in the book. There is this idea that there is a commandment that God has given down through the ages that is, love God with all of who you are, love your neighbor as yourself. And John is specifically focusing on a subset of that, which is to love those who are genuinely professing Jesus is their Savior and God is their God. So here's the question based on these verses. If perfected love is seen in love of the brothers, do you love your brother? How do you know? I mean... There's some respects in which it's parallel to whether we love our, our biological family or family that we're connected with in a formal kind of sense. If you're never there and you never help them, if you never talk to them, if you have no concern about what's going on in their lives, all of those sorts of things, it's really hard to make the case, oh, I really love this person. Yeah, they had this problem, but I wouldn't help with that. Yeah, you know, I think the last time I talked to him was like seven years ago. You can't really say you have a relationship with someone that that's the kind of contact and the kind of interaction that you have. 
So just on a really practical application point, if we in this church are supposed to be connected with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, is there anybody in the church that you either deliberately or accidentally don't treat like family? What I mean by that is, um, I don't do this perfectly, but I try very hard to, in the course of a month, have conversations with everybody in the church. Now, that ebbs and flows. Sometimes, if somebody's in the hospital, I might have a lot more conversations with that person than with everybody else because that person is in a time of greater need, potentially, than everybody else who is healthy and not going through that problem. But the reality is, sometimes there are spiritual struggles that are going on, and those, those things require more intense and regular conversations, but that doesn't exclude the responsibility that I have to try to connect with everybody in the church. But I think it's easy for us to think that that's primarily the pastor's job and it's okay for me to talk to the two or three people that I'm closest with and not to anybody else. And I'm not saying that we have a tremendous problem with that in our church because I have been in churches, usually larger churches, but not always, where it is a much more glaring issue. This family unit kind of hangs out an extended family. This family unit kind of hangs out with extended family. This group of friends that all went to high school together spends time together, and nobody else is allowed to be a part of their groups. But even in a church the size of ours, we have to constantly be guarding ourselves against the tendency to split off into little groups that we're comfortable with and ignore everybody else. These could be along stage-of-life kind of divisions. You have kids at home is a very obvious one. These could be you're retired or near retirement age. These could be um, you're a widow. You've lost your husband. These could be you're a kid, so you're not an adult, so you don't want to talk to any of the adults. I'm only going to talk to the kids. These could be common um, interests. You like NASCAR, so you talk with the one other person in this area that likes NASCAR. I'm just kidding. That's probably more than that. Um, and if you love that, I'm not making fun of you. I'm just saying we, we, we think that there's um, some interest that we really love. So if we find some person that really loves that same interest, we got to be friends with them and everybody else. You know, forget about that. Um, could be sports affiliation. Could be economic status. Here's the people that happened in the, in the early church. Here's the rich people. Here's the poor people. We don't associate with each other unless we want something from each other. There's all sorts. It could be ethnic background. It could be there's all sorts of things that can be reasons for us to form little cliques, little groups, little isolations from everybody else in the body. And when it says, love his brother also, we need to really wrestle with the reality of, am I loving my brother if I never talk to him? Am I loving my sister if I never talk to her? Because the, the reality, I think, is if you and I aren't even getting to the point of having a conversation with somebody, even really basic things like, how was your week? We're probably not going to be doing the harder conversations of, hey, how's your walk with God doing? And we're also not going to be in a position to help in the really hard situations like, I just found out I'm going to die in a week. 
or I just lost my job, or these relationships that have been central to my life have just fallen apart in the last month. So there's a progression that has to start with basic interaction, spiritual encouragement, and then being there and having each other's back in times of great distress and difficulty. We're not going to get to that point where it says in Hebrews, hey, you went and visited the prisoners knowing that if you associate with them, you might become a target for government persecution. You're not going to be at that point if you don't practice having basic conversations with people in a time of peace, in a time of relative ease, all of those kinds of things. John continues to develop this in chapter 5. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, when he says Jesus is the Christ, he's saying Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Savior of the world, he's the one God sent to deal with sin. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God and will love others born of God. So what's the unifying reality in the church? It is our common confession that Jesus is God, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus has come in the flesh, Jesus is the way to God. All of those sorts of key truths about salvation, the gospel is the thing that unifies a local church. Not all the other things I was talking about a minute ago. We're the same age, we do the same things, we came from the same place, we are in the same social groups. That's not the thing that unifies the church. Those are the things that divide the church because we bring them in from outside. The thing that unifies the church is we are wholeheartedly and to the death committed to the gospel realities of who God is and Jesus is the way to God and all those things. If that's the case, the natural response is you love anyone else who believes that same way about Jesus and lives it out. How is love of God, uh, love for God demonstrated? We love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. And then verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments that are not burdensome. Sometimes it feels burdensome, maybe. You need to go spend time with a person that you feel is hard to spend time with. You need to go encourage someone who, no matter how hard you encourage that person, still feels like they're always discouraged. You need to go and whatever it is. And that doesn't feel easy, but in contrast to the devastating consequences of hating people around you and living selfishly, it is not burdensome. And because God has given you his spirit to enable you to do the things he's called you to do, it should not be burdensome. But if we don't keep God's commandments, and I don't think verse 2 is primarily focused on all of God's commandments, but the specific command to love your brother that John keeps coming back to over and over again, we see God's love when we obey his command to love our brother as ourself, and that is not burdensome empowered by God's Spirit if we really, truly know who God is and have a relationship with Him. So to sum up that section, those who believe in Jesus as the Messiah are born of God, and as children of God, they love other children of God. Together, God's children obey His commands and find freedom in love toward God and man. But John doesn't stop there. He continues to tie together the tests of faith he's been developing in the first four chapters. What's your relationship to sin? What's your relationship to fellow believers? What's your relationship to Jesus? In 4, 15 through 21, he shows a clear result of genuinely confessing Jesus, 
God's love will be perfected in you, and you will love your brother. Going back to the very first test, though, what's your relationship to sin? And more broadly, to the world of sin opposed to God, you can and will have victory over the world if Jesus is in you, since Jesus overcame the world, defeating sin and Satan, and ultimately will destroy all of his works. So that's the second main point. True believers overcome the world. We see that in verses 4 down through verse 12. So first of all, God's children overcome the world. We see this in verse 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, has victory over the world. So if you're born of God, you overcome the world. We talked before, world is used in a variety of ways in John's Gospels and in his letters. World here is not you overcome uh, the physical aspects of the world like you are able to climb a mountain or ride up a hill on your bike or something like that. You conquer nature. That's not the point that he's making. He's not saying you overcome the world in a sense of being primarily antagonistic against the people in the world. The way that he's using world, I would say, is similar to the way he uses it in chapter 2, that in the world there are systems of belief and attitudes and actions opposed to God. So, you will, going back to chapter 2, have victory over the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life if you genuinely have Jesus and you have true faith. Faith in God through Jesus by the Spirit's power is the victory that overcomes the world. Now, people argue about what the victory is. Is the victory, the final victory over sin when Jesus comes and conquers? Is it that we'll share in that? I mean, that's true. Is it daily victory over temptation? That's what I was just describing. That's also true. The reality is those things are not disconnected from each other. If we have victory over the world now in resisting temptation and drawing closer to God, we will also share in Christ's victory when he conquers the world when he comes to reign over it. So I don't think we need to make it two separate things. There are two different aspects of the same victory that comes through the same faith. So faith in God is shown in love, which overcomes the hatred, the temptation, the evil of the world. And as a result of seeing God's love at work in each other's lives, according to verse 4, overcoming the world then confirms your testimony and gives you assurance of faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? First of all, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How did Jesus come? Verse 6, this is the one who came with water and blood, Jesus Christ. So when it says Jesus came with water and blood, there's some argument about what those two words mean. We might try to tie it into John 3, where it talks about water and the Spirit. Um, there are other people who would try to tie it in to um, uh, baptism and the Lord's table, the water and the remembrance of the blood. But the most reasonable connection between water and blood and then what he's going to say in verse 8 about spirit and water and blood is this. What happened when Jesus was baptized? God testified, here is my son. What happened when Jesus was crucified. The centurion and others testify this was the Son of God. What happens at the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost? 
All of the people there collectively testify of the wonderful works of God and of the resurrection of Jesus. So what is the witness? At Jesus' baptism, at Jesus' crucifixion, after Jesus' resurrection, there is a consistent testimony that Jesus is and truly was the Son of God. So how then do you believe in Jesus? The Spirit testifies about Jesus in verse 6. The Spirit is the truth. He says in verse 7 and 8 that there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. He's probably pointing back to uh, in the Old Testament, there was a passage where, I think it's in Deuteronomy 19, that things had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So what's he saying the two or three witnesses are to the fact that Jesus is God? His baptism, his crucifixion, his resurrection as testified through the power of the Spirit through the apostles. So there is consistent evidence to the fact that Jesus is God. We say, well, I don't believe what the apostles said. There are still the two witnesses in which God proclaimed Jesus to be his son by declaring it verbally at his baptism. And on the cross, it is visible that Jesus is the son of God by all the things that take place. So God has testified to Jesus. And so even if we don't um, receive the testimony of men. If we receive the testimony of men, God's testimony is greater, verse 9. But if we don't believe the testimony of people, we still have God's testimony. So what does that have to do with assurance of faith? How can you have assurance of faith? Believing in the Son of God means that God's testimony about Jesus witnesses to your faith. So here's the connection. If God says, this is my Son and you believe in Jesus that God has said is his son, then God has the right to declare that you are believing what is true about his son and therefore have a relationship with him. In contrast, rejecting the son of God, in the second part of verse 10, the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given concerning his son. It condemns you because God has testified, this is my son, He is the only way you must believe in him. If we reject God's testimony, we're saying, God, you're a liar. Jesus is not the only way. I don't have to believe in him, and I'm not going to. And that level of arrogance says, God, you're a liar, and I don't care about what you want. Can we in that moment claim to belong to God if just before that moment we've said, I don't believe you, and I'm not going to do what you want? No. Again, going back to the illustration of family. You know that someone in your family really wants you to do a particular thing, and your response is, no, you don't, and I don't care. You don't have a good relationship with that person. In fact, it could be argued, maybe you don't really have a relationship at all in that moment. And so in the same way, how do we have confidence, or how do we negatively know that we don't belong to God It is in our response to God's testimony about his son Jesus, which again goes back to what we looked at last week. If the testimony is Jesus is God, and you're like, nope, don't believe that. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. Nope, don't believe that. Jesus came. Nope, just a legend, a myth. I don't care. Some thing people made up because they need some crutch of religion to believe in. We cannot invent Jesus according to our own imaginations and claim a relationship with the God who said, here is what he is like, here is who he is, believe in him in this way, or you have no part with him. What is the testimony of God? The testimony is this. God has given us eternal life, 
And this life is in his son. If you have eternal life, the only way that you have it is through Jesus. He's the only source of eternal life. And in contrast, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. You can't say, I reject the Son of God, but I've got God the Father. Can't say God is our Father, but forget Jesus. Can't say God is one, but forget Jesus. Can't say there's one God, but forget Jesus. He's just a prophet. He's a myth. He's not what the Bible says that he is. You cannot do that and actually have a relationship with God. You can't follow Islam, you can't follow Judaism, you can't follow all the cults and the false religions in the world that deny some central aspect of who Jesus is and claim to have a relationship with God because it is a lie. You're spitting in the face of God saying, you don't know what you're talking about, I don't believe you, and I get to decide how the world works and what faith should look like and where I'm going to go. And God says, no, I've decided it, you can think you've decided it, but here's the end result, you will not have the life of God. That's a sobering thing to wrestle with because it is possible that someone comes to a book like 1 John and says, I just want confirmation because I've not been really sure if I walk with God. You could read through it and if if the realities of it sink in, you could be in a moment where you say, I don't have the life of God in me, which means I stand condemned, which means if that judgment happened right now, I am lost forever. That's a sober reality. So John is writing out of compassion. He doesn't want people to deceive themselves and be lost forever. He's writing out of a sense of warning. If you think that you walk with God, but none of these things line up with what I've revealed to you in this book, you need to think again. And also as a warning to God's people who say, oh yeah, I believe these things. But then some difficulty comes. Some temptation comes. Some desire for ease comes. And we say, you know what? All this stuff about Jesus and God is not all that important. I'm going to go my own way. Our explanation of what takes place in that moment can differ. But the reality is, and I hope we would agree, in that moment, if you said, Jesus is not for me, God is not for me, the Bible is not for me, Christianity is not for me, I hope none of us would say, oh yeah, you're fine with God, everything's great, you can still call yourself a Christian, because John says you have to believe these things or you don't have God's life. And whether your explanation is because you never had it or you deliberately abandon it, that's a point for other conversation, but the reality is the person who says, I want nothing to do with God, should not confidently say, well, I'm a Christian, So there's been a trend in our society, particularly in the last, I don't know, 10 years, of people who have deconstructed or deconverted from Christianity. And a lot of them still want to call themselves Christians or claim some measure of belief in God. And what is John saying in this passage? You can't do that. You can't say... I reject that Jesus is God. I reject that God says he's the only way. I reject that the Bible is true. I reject God's testimony. But I'm still a a God-fearing person. No. You're a pagan. You've rejected the core of what God has revealed. You cannot say, I believe in God. 
Because to do so is to redefine belief in God in a way that becomes meaningless. If you say, oh, I believe in God, but it's not the God of the Bible, it's this God of my own imagination, you can't claim to be someone who believes in God. So here's the question then. Verse 12, he who has the Son has life, who does not have the Son does not have the life. Do you have life or do you not have life? We have to think through John's argument to answer that question. He said, true confession about Jesus shows God's presence in you. God's presence in you perfects your love to be like God's love. God's love is shown in sacrificial service. Your sacrificial service, your love toward the brethren, shows that you belong to God. If you belong to God, you'll overcome the world through faith. What kind of faith? Faith in Jesus as the Son of God. How do we know that Jesus is who he says he is? Because he was born as a human and reborn through death on the cross. The Spirit further testifies to the truth about who Jesus is. If you don't believe the historical witness of people, then believe God's own testimony through his Spirit. If you reject Jesus, you do not have eternal life. If you receive or have received Jesus, you will have eternal life. So, are you someone who knows and expresses God's love to others? Alongside that, are you someone who is having victory, overcoming the world by faith, because you believe God's testimony and His testimony is confirmed in you? True believers enjoy perfect love that overcomes the world. And we'll see, as we finish out chapter 5, how John continues to tie all of these ideas together but he's done an important job in this passage of linking these ideas and saying true believers have perfect love that overcomes the world that confirms God's presence in them. So do you have eternal life? Part of the test that we're looking at this week. Do you experience God's perfected love? And are you overcoming the world? Let's pray, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Father, as we consider and have considered these important truths this morning, help us not to take them lightly. If we do know you, according to the pattern that's laid out here, help us to be faithful and persevere in that faith. Help us to call those around us who may be deceived about their walk with God, to soberly consider these truths as well. Not to let them step out into eternity not knowing where they are standing before you. Not to deceive themselves that belief in some kind of God is good enough. Help us as each of us grows older and learns more things and hears more ideas not to ever get to a place where we in our pride or in our supposed knowledge think that we move beyond these basic truths and they're not for us anymore and somehow we know better than you. Help us not to be complacent about lack of victory over the world in our response to temptation and in the influence that the world exerts on us. 
Help us not to ever think that we've arrived and said, well, I've got enough of God's love to get by, so it doesn't need to grow and develop and be perfected. I don't need to learn how to love other people more. I don't need to learn how to love God more. I'm good enough where I'm at. Lord, help us not to be lazy. Help us not to be deceived. Help us to be confident, but not in ourselves, but in the work that you have done and are doing in us so that we can say boldly, yes, I belong to Jesus. I am not yet perfect, but he is perfecting me. I have not yet seen that final victory, but there are marks of victory in my day-to-day life. And when those things are true, we have a platform and a, a basis for going and sharing those things with those around us. But if we don't really demonstrate God's love, it undermines our testimony. If we don't overcome the world... How can you use us as a witness against it and to deliver others who are trapped in the ways of this world? We pray that you would do your work in our lives.